0: word uh, used for tree here it means wood okay so this criminal would be impaled on a large wooden pole so what purpose could there possibly be for essentially killing a person after they were already dead it's a little strange right well when you consider that uh, the pole or that in Israel in ancient Israel there were no skyscrapers there were no multiple story buildings the answer begins to become clear, okay? The point of this execution action was to display the body in the air for everyone to see at the top of a very tall pole. A 20-foot pole with a dead, impaled body occupying the skyline was pretty tough to miss. And you can see why I didn't give you notes this morning, okay? But why do this to a person who is already dead, well, I would say that for, there would be for any th- a combination of any three reasons. Okay? The first one is to make an example. I mean, if you don't want people to commit capital crimes punishable by death, then a pretty effective form of deterring people from that, uh, that action is reminding them of the consequences of criminal activity by putting a morbid display of the criminal's body hanging over your community during the day. Okay, criminals plotting acts of murder, you could imagine, or other acts punishable by death, uh, might get the message. They might be deterred from the activity that they were considering doing, persuaded to abandon their plans. And making an example of these criminals was probably a pretty effective form of communicating that in this community, we don't take those kinds of actions very lightly. Now, the second reason that you might display a corpse of a criminal in such a way is merely as an act of disgrace. Humans, I would say, have a, a, a certain respect for the dead. Generally, we don't take bodies and defile them after they're dead. We put them through a dignified process to dispose of them in such a way that brings dignity and respect to the life of that person, even as a criminal. We bury them or we cremate them probably because somewhere deep down inside, we have this innate sense that humankind was made in the image of God. And we respect that and honor that. And so how disgusting, how awful, how undignified then that the body of a criminal would be raised up and humiliated for everyone to see. These are the The parts of the Old Testament that we sort of gloss over because they're kind of awkward and uncomfortable to talk about. I mean, this act, or I'm sorry, the act of the criminal was so shameful in life as to deserve not only death, but mockery and humiliation after death. Now, the third reason for hanging a person on a tree after death is purely as an act of dominance. Some criminals carry out their crimes as an act of defiance. As if to say that the state or the people of this community have no power or authority over them. They are an authority unto themselves. They yield to nobody. Well, that's not all too convincing a stance to have if after you've been executed, your body is then lifted up in humiliation for everyone in that community to see and remember your disgrace. There's nothing quite like a body impaled in the air to communicate the message. We rule over you. We dominate you. We have power and authority over your life to take it away if we choose. So this process found in Deuteronomy 21 shows us that the man that was hanged on the tree, the criminal, was a particularly awful breed of human being, deserving more than just punishment for their crimes— But worthy also of being set up as a negative example, having earned the utmost disgrace and having come to an end where his life is so much of nothing that he is dominated by those who've carried out this execution sentence, and they now see his body humiliated and displayed before the world. And this was such a nasty and unpleasant end to one's life, even as a criminal, That God himself refused to allow the body to hang past sundown. That was his law. The text tells us that a hanged man is cursed by God. Now, this doesn't mean that God would heap curses on the body of the criminal impaled. Okay, It sort of seems entirely unnecessary at this point, doesn't it? Adding insult to the injury has pretty much thoroughly been accomplished already. And so the word translated cursed here, what it means is vile, awful, deplorable, disgusting. The idea is that the body is unfit to stay in the presence of God's holy people who are consecrated to him. It is cursed and it is despised. And so offensive to God was it that it would literally defile the land before him and his people and make it unfit for them to live in should the body remain displayed through the night. into multiple days. It's as if in this act of humiliation, God joined his people in rejecting the criminal, turning his back upon them. Now, this may be the first that you've ever heard of this kind of uh, humiliation after death, but the truth is that many ancient cultures practiced this kind of thing. Uh, In the book of Esther, in the Bible, we see that the Persians practiced the same kind of impaling. And there are numerous other ancient uh, cultures that I could mention that did the same sort of thing. But you are already aware, even if you think you haven't heard of this before, you're already aware of the civilization that perfected hanging criminals on a tree. And it was the Romans who had a very similar process for displaying bodies, only they took it a step further by melding together the act of killing And also humiliating into one execution, nailing the condemned individual to a wooden structure in the form of a cross. Then slowly they let them suffocate and suffer, displayed in humiliation for all to see, until that victim finally died, which in some cases could take as many as three, four days. All the while, the criminal was visible there, more than likely in a very public place, outside the city gates or even potentially in the city center, for all to see, to ridicule, to insult, and to harass. And they had the very same motivation behind this form of execution that I've already mentioned. Of course, the primary goal was to make the criminal suffer and die. But equally as important was the point they were trying to make. First, don't mess with us, or we will make an example of you as well, and you too will have your life come to an end like this man. Two, to display the body in a public humiliation as an act of disgrace. And three, to prove the power of Rome as the nation that dominates and ruled supreme over resistors, criminals, and revolutionaries. And the Romans, they hung bodies on trees by the tens of thousands to let the world know that nobody could defy them. And Jesus was one of their victims. But it wasn't just the Romans who put Jesus on the cross, was it? No, because in fact, to be totally accurate, Scripture tells us that nobody put Jesus on the cross. Jesus willingly went of his own free will as an act of love, to his execution. Jesus allowed himself to be crucified. And if anything caused him to hang on the tree for all to see, making a spectacle out of his death like some despised criminal, if anything put him there, it was sin. Because sin has the same purposes in destroying lives as the Romans did in using the cross as the tool of execution. Sin seeks to exercise authority over us and dominate us. And as such, sin always ends in death. Sin seeks to make our lives into a public exhibition of disgrace and humiliation. How often do we hide the sin that we're engaging in? Because we would hate for the world to know. And sin seeks to make an example out of us. It loves to drag us down so that others can see the way that we have failed and fallen short the power that sin has over us. But on the cross, Jesus took all of that. He suffered under the authority of sin, giving his life up to death willingly. He allowed his execution to be a display of disgrace and humiliation. He died knowingly and still in love with us for those sins that we try so desperately to hide. And he became the example of, that sin hopes to make of your life by destroying it. He became that himself. And in those moments on the cross, that's what God the Father saw in Jesus. Sin and humiliation and disgrace. And Jesus hung on a tree and became a curse so that we could be free from the curse. He allowed himself to be lifted up for all to see as an example, even though he was innocent, the furthest thing from a criminal. But we know how the story ends, right? Because Jesus didn't stay on the cross. Because of the love of God, uh, he overcame. And sin was defeated, and he could not stay there. And so true to the Old Testament law that we've just read in Deuteronomy, Jesus died the very same day that he went to the cross, remarkably. Probably because at this point his body was already so abused and beaten that it couldn't suffer any more blood loss. And so he died on the cross, and his body was taken down before the end of that day. And he was buried in that tomb where three days later he rose from the dead. Now, I would say, unfortunately, we're so familiar with this story that the irony of the resurrection is lost on us. Let me explain what I mean. Remember, you you hang a body on a stake to make an example of how not to live your life. You hang a dead body on a tree to shame it and disgrace it, and you lift it up in death to show the world that you dominate and you have authority to take life. And the great irony of the cross is that in his resurrection, Jesus not only accomplished our salvation, but he shamed death by taking away its victory. He dominated death by showing that it had no authority and that he had the authority to give back life where death had taken it. And he gave us the ultimate example of how to live our lives. We look to Jesus' life and death and resurrection and we discern the ultimate example of how we ought to live rather than the example of how we should not live. And what the Jews and the Romans intended as a curse to defile the body of Christ, God intended as a blessing for everyone who would believe that Jesus is Lord. And what happened at the cross and the resurrection is that Jesus gave us, his followers, a new identity. The cross secured for us a new identity. We were covered by the love of God in that moment who so desperately wanted us to be free from shame and death that he took that upon himself. And as believers and children of God, we are now a new creation because of the cross. We're new people because of what Jesus did for us. And our response to the cross should be to live in our newness of life. Okay, but what so happens or but, but what so often happens is the way that we live as Christians causes us to actually crucify Jesus again and again and again and again, shaming the work that Jesus did on the cross. See, we believe that, uh, we, we, we often believe that he died for us, and as a result of his death, we are forgiven. But the power that we have through him is not enough. The power to live a changed life is not enough. Now, there's an enigmatic passage of Scripture in Hebrews 6, I also put it in your your handout for you, that talks about people who once professed to be Christians walking away from their faith in Jesus. And I want to read this for you. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. We will move beyond. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What I want you to see here is that we're supposed to grow and move away from the basic elementary ideas of our faith by becoming more mature as Christians. Okay, Once a foundation is laid in a building, you don't lay another foundation on top of it and another on top of it. You've done that part, and you move on to the next part of the project, even as the foundation props up the structure moving forward from there. You don't lay multiple foundations, and so too with us. Your identity as a Christian is established in Jesus because of what he did for you through his death and resurrection. And you are God's beloved. You are his, cher- his cherished possession, his beautiful child. He's redeemed. He bought you with his blood. And I don't have time to go into all the complexities of this passage in Hebrews, unfortunately. But the other piece that I want you to see is that those who know the goodness of the truth of their identity in Jesus and refuse to live in that, it's like they're crucifying Christ all over again, shaming his work on the cross and holding him up to contempt. Now, this passage is referring specifically to people who walk away from their faith in Jesus. But I think to some degree, when we fail to live in the truth of what Jesus has done for us, then we too are guilty of crucifying Jesus all over again. We don't appreciate what he has done for us. We don't live in that new reality. And there's forgiveness even there for us as believers. It's not something we need to panic about. God's forgiveness reaches even there. But when we get stuck on needing to feel forgiven, or when we are fixated on our sinfulness rather than God's graciousness, when we don't move past the basic ideas of grace into the deeper transforming truth that Scripture tells us about, when we fail to live in the reality of this new identity as a child of God, then it's like we're putting Christ on the cross all over again. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, as Christians, we don't persist in sin. We don't believe in Satan's lies. We don't stop struggling to be victorious day in and day out. We don't give up the fight. We don't allow our hearts to ever become calloused or hard. We don't neglect the body of believers that we meet with here at the church. And we never put worldliness in front of our love for Jesus. That's simply not what Christians do. We don't ever give up the struggle. And we don't linger on the basics of Christianity either. That Jesus died and rose again for our forgiveness. That's where the whole thing starts, but there's so much more. We press on then to live in his newness of life more and more every day. We start at the cross, yes, of course but we better not still be at the cross five years and 10 years and 30 years into our walk with him. There's so much more about our faith in Christ for us to learn and grow into. And at some point, we should be living in new life through the power of the resurrection. Now, I want to finish by telling you what this means for your life today and tomorrow. That's a great principle but how does it apply, right, living in this newness of life? How do the things that I've mentioned actually make sense for your daily living? For the sake of, of time and simplicity, I just want to give you one application regarding Christ's victory on the cross. I've given you this passage of Scripture as well. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 5. And it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, most of my life is lived in my thoughts, and yours is too. And if I'm honest, most of my thoughts are filled with deceit and lies and self-infatuation. I struggle with my thoughts. And when I allow those thoughts to have power in my life and my heart, then I flirt with putting Jesus on the cross all over again, going right back to the beginning. And we have the power through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to destroy those strongholds by taking our thoughts captive to the truth of God's word, to the truth of our forgiveness in Christ once and for all, and obedience to him in our daily living. So what this looks like, when your boss comes to you and gives you your annual review and tells you that your performance was less than what he or she expected of you and that you're just not that great as an employee, you listen to that criticism, you hear it, you work harder to honor God, but you don't believe for a second that that person has the authority to tell you who you are and you remember that it is God who determines your value and that you are priceless that's what he says about you so you don't take that home you don't let it crush you for weeks you live in the truth of your identity that Jesus died to save you and your value is limitless in his eyes or when you have one of those moments like we all do when you see your sin honestly And you're just disappointed in who you are. And the temptation arises inside of you to believe that you just can't change. This is how you are. It won't ever be different. Or the temptation arises to say, you know what, I don't even want to change. It's too much work. Or maybe the temptation arises to say, I don't even need to change because I'm pretty darn good the way that I am. Then you take those thoughts captive And you remember that Jesus died so that you can change, so that you don't have to be stuck. And you fight and you struggle by the power of God at work within you to be the person that the word of God tells you you need to be. Or when you have conflict with another Christian, maybe it's at home or maybe right here in our church, And you're tempted to let that conflict persist, to just gloss it over, to let it go unaddressed, to tiptoe around it, or to let it fester so you become bitter and angry. Then when that temptation arises, you take those thoughts captive to the truth of Scripture, and you go after that person seeking reconciliation and forgiveness and restoration you remember what it was that Jesus suffered so that you could be forgiven and reconciled and redeemed and restored. Now, these are small examples of what it means to live in the truth of your your new identity, but that's what it looks like day after day, bit by bit, little by little, with the power of God at work within you. And at the heart of it is this truth. Jesus only died one time. He only died once because he only needed to die one time. And he rose for eternity so that you could have eternal life, which doesn't start after you die. It begins right now as you're formed daily more and more into the likeness of Christ. Let me pray. God, we love you so much for the work that you did on the cross. To not just redeem us, but to make a mockery out of death and sin and evil. To put it in its place and take away its sting and take away its victory. And we worship you for your victory. And God, I pray that we would be people who, who not just believe that truth, but who live in the reality of the new identity that we have in Christ. That we are your precious and beloved children. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives daily, the power of God at work within us, that we can be more and more like your son, Jesus. And God, I pray that you would bring the kingdom of heaven into our hearts, that we would be people who live powerfully and victoriously over sin. And we worship you now for everything that you accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Amen.